Hi, I'm Lynette from LeanPub, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Matthew Gay. Based in Bangkok, Matthew is a writer and senior editor on the marketing team for Zapier, the popular service for integrating apps and automating workflows. You can read Matthew's blog at techinch.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at M-A-G-U-A-Y. Matthew has helped write a number of books for the Zapier team, including The Ultimate Guide to Remote Work, The Ultimate Guide to G Suite, and a few others. Um, in this interview, we're going to be uh, talking about Matthew's professional interests, his career, um, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about um, self-publishing content. So thank you, Matthew, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and in preparing for the interview, I saw that you studied computer information systems at college, and you eventually became a writer and worked in marketing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that journey and perhaps um, how you ended up in Thailand. Sure. So it's funny, college uh, to me, it feels like this huge decision. Um, kids get out of high school, they've had most of their courses planned all the way through, and then boom, you're 18 and you're supposed to decide what you're going to study for you know, your career for the rest of your life. And as we know, especially nowadays, that really often doesn't stick. The best thing college is going to prepare you for, hopefully, is a life of learning, right, where you keep learning throughout life through reading and studying and whatever. So um, personally, I grew up in Thailand, actually, about half of my uh, childhood was in Thailand. My parents are missionaries of country in Thailand. And uh, so when I went to start university, I the town we lived in was very small, had one community college and not many other options. And so I looked around a bit at online college options to maybe do one year there and then move back to the States or a larger city in Thailand and finish college. And so I started out at University of Texas. Um, I was planning on doing engineering and uh, calculus absolutely was terrible. And so I decided to switch to IT and computer information systems instead. Um, but basically that first year I was studying from University of Texas online and I had a professor um, in business writing, Evelyn Posey, and she had us as a project in uh, the class make a blog. And well, it was just supposed to be like make a small portfolio online, right? Well, I actually decided I would write tutorials on there and just sort of keep the thing going, right? And sort of learn from that that you write really niche tech articles. For instance, I wrote a tutorial about how to fix this specific printer and get it to work with Windows 64-bit. I forget what version. And it got steady traffic because it was the first result for that very, very niche keyword result, right? And that basically started me on the route of writing about tech. And so I ended up transferring to Florida Tech, finished my degree online from the middle of nowhere in Thailand, and started writing online at the same time. And it just sort of went hand in hand, right? It was a job I could do as an easy way to get started in tech. And the IT courses gave me enough tech background to be able to inform the writing. And so hopefully I can you know, write about tech in a way that simplifies it for people, makes it not so technical. And yet I can still grasp the technical aspects and help people through that. So it's, it's sort of just a thing where I accidentally fell into both the degree plan and a career that was slightly tangential to that degree. And it went from there. 
um, there's a coincidence in your um, uh, background and um, where I happen to be living right now, which is um, you used to work for MetaLab um, and in a job related to their product called Flow. Um, and I live in Victoria. MetaLab is, you know, walking distance. Their office is, as I understand it, pretty close to where I am. And I just wanted to ask you, um, what did you do for the product? Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, so I had worked for um, CoSupport, which was a startup by Sarah Hatter, who used to be at 37 Signals. Um, basically, it was writing documentation and starting support for new companies. And MetaLab got in touch with us, wanting us to help push their support forward for Float at that time. And so that's how I ended up working with them as a contractor through CoSupport. And then I ended up working with them directly Um essentially just doing their customer support and documentation, um, which was a super cool way to, you know, really dig into a piece of software and learn every little tiny thing, right? Every tiny problem people are going to have, whatever. You learn all the edge cases and you can document them and support them. So, yeah, that's what I did with Flow. It's um, one of the really interesting things about running a, you know, service online, um, or, a you know, digital product is that if the writing is really good, then the scale at which you can operate increases dramatically. And I think it's something a lot of people don't necessarily recognize, um, how, if you get the words just right in something like a customer support, uh, document, or in even in, in automated emails and things like that, it can make a huge difference. Um, yep. And I was wondering if you have uh, any advice for anybody out there who might be, you know, running a little startup for what they can do for perhaps for good examples of customer support documentation uh, that they can go to. Sure. Yeah. So uh, two things I found with that is one, especially if your product's very focused, um, if you do support enough, you answer people's questions, you end up finding um, the normal problems people have, the, the features they want, the bugs they hit, etc. Um, as a developer, you can fix those, right? You can start solving some of those problems. But some of the things are going to be, maybe you can't fix them. Maybe it's just the way your product works. It's a, a mismatch, whatever. And you can use that to inform either your product or documentation or both. So say you answer a question one time and the person doesn't exactly get what you're meaning, switch the answer up a bit. Next time, try that new answer on the new person. If they get it the first time, you've probably found the winner. Now you can save that as a text expander, make it into a support doc, whatever. And you can almost, maybe not exactly automate that one support case, but you can almost automate it, right? You can now reply very quickly and hopefully have enough time to make it personal. So if they say, Maybe they have this one problem and some more personal need. You can apply to the personal need to make it a human interaction and the actual steps of what to fix. You've already written that. Just reuse it. And so you can use it sort of like an easy way to A-B test your answers, right? Uh, send it to a customer. If, they, if it doesn't work, try another answer. Hone that until you get something great. And then at the same time, you're building a public-facing support library with those great answers. Um, that you've tested on people and you put those online and hopefully your customers start solving their own problems. The funny thing is though, that makes support more difficult because once you've solved the easy problems, the things people do send in are going to be very difficult and you're going to have much harder tickets, but that's actually a good problem. So 
that's that's something um, at Flow. Definitely, that was the case with a, a more focused type product. Um, you end up finding the edge cases easier. Um, at Zapier, our entire company does all team support. Everyone from developers to um, our CEO, marketing, everyone chips in to support some per week um, as a way to sort of understand what our customers, uh, the problems they hit, the things we can do to help them. And Zapier connects 700 apps together. So you, your number of edge cases are just phenomenal. So it actually doesn't work quite as well as Zapier in that sense, right? Because we've got so many edge cases, you're not going to memorize them all, which is where documentation comes in. If your product's really massive, even your own team's never going to remember every possible thing that could go wrong. So you document those, it helps your team, it helps the public, and it should grow your support together. And what sort of documentation system are you using? As Zapier, yeah. um, we have an internal tool. Everything we, uh, all of our content as Zapier is built on the Django. So it's a custom CMS we have, sort of helps us tie it into the product. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we started using something called um, Intercom a while ago, which um, you know a lot of people who are into startups and stuff will will have heard about. Um, and uh, they started this uh, new product called Educate, um, which has been really useful for us in dealing with things where basically you can easily create an article online, and then if if a request comes in over email, um, you can just you know put a link to the mm. document and then you can actually see where people go from that document elsewhere um which is which is really useful um uh yeah it's interesting you brought up 37 signals um uh i believe it was in one of their books that um they focused or at least uh devoted some space to the importance and power of good writing um on having a great product uh it's just so so important i mean we've we've at LeanPub, we've experienced, you know, sort of decreases in uh, customer contact around certain issues by changing two words in an email. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's just incredible. But I can only imagine the the challenges of doing it with um, so many integrations. Um, actually, on that note, could you maybe um, explain a little bit about what Zapier is for those who are listening who might not be aware of it? Yeah, sure thing. So um, Zapier is an automation platform. It helps you basically get rid of your busy work. Um, you need to copy and paste stuff from apps. Instead of doing that, Zapier can watch your apps for new data and copy them over. So that sounds geeky, so let's make it a bit simpler. Say you have a sign-up form for your, uh, you're, you're gonna launch a book, right? And you've, you have a blog, you put a form there, um, and you want to send those people an email to thank them for joining your email list, and then you want to add them to your email list. So we've got three steps there. Um, with Zapier, you're going to make a form with whatever form app you like. We support, I'm going to say 15 off the top of my head. I'm not even sure. There's quite a number of form apps from Typeform to Google Forms, Woohoo, et cetera. You can add your form to Zapier, so it'll watch for new entries. Whenever anyone fills out your form, Zapier will get that data. So now you can connect Zapier to Gmail and tell it, I want to send an email to this customer and you write it from your personal Gmail account so it feels like a more natural reach out. Maybe you can fill in their name from the form, et cetera, and Zapier will send that and then it will add them to your email list. Say it will copy that email address over to MailChimp. And you could even say add a delay in there and three days later, email them again with a copy of your first chapter as a download. So that's a tiny example. You can do those same kind of things with Salesforce, with 
Google Sheets with just tons of different software. And so some of the things we see are very small use cases. Maybe you just need to share your RSS feed to Twitter and Instagram. That's, uh, well, Instagram would be a very bad idea there. Um, let's say Facebook, um, you can very easily do that with Zapier. Or say you want to build an entire business. Um, there's a customer of ours who uses Zapier to run basically an Uber for lawn mowing, where they have a form on their site where you can book a lawn mowing session. It sends an SMS to the uh, lawn care professional who's closest to your house and arranges the whole job, does the payments and everything. It's all routed through Zaps. And so you can use it as a simple way to build basic software without coding, or you can just use it to simplify tiny things that bug you and your professional work. Oh, that's really cool and a very clear explanation. Thanks for that. I, I hadn't thought of Zapier in quite those terms, but that's really interesting. Um, one thing um, about Zapier is that it's very clear in its messaging about its mission, which is that there's work that should be done by people and then there's work that should be done by computers, um, essentially. And um, with the obvious caveat that any opinions you express here are your own, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the marketing that goes in around automation. Um, it's a big topic these days and something that, I mean, it, more that people are often quite concerned about when they hear about automation. Um, that people will be losing their jobs, essentially. I mean, this is not a new worry, but it's nope. sort of reached a new pitch uh, in in society. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk, I mean, as someone who writes about tech generally, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, what's your opinion about the impact that, I mean, not so much necessarily in kind of uh, digital activity, but what what is the impact of automation going to be? Um, on the economy and on society, do you think, going forward? Um, yeah, with the caveat, I'm definitely not an expert here. Um, it is funny because automation is sort of the the technologist existential crisis. Um, if you read Hacker News, there's probably at least one post or one detailed thread every day um, with basically people thinking within five years, no one's going to have a job, etc. Society's going to break down. It's going to be crazy. And it does worry me in some respects. Um, automation, we need to be able to retrain people. People need to be able to switch jobs more easily, et cetera. But actually working at Zapier, I think, has given me a different perspective on it. Um, we had a customer the other day tell us um, they don't really save time with Zapier because of the volume Zapier operates. The work wouldn't get done in the first place if they didn't have it. Um, and think about how many jobs today are done by automation that wouldn't be done otherwise. Um, spam email is a very easy example, unfortunately, on both sides of the spectrum. And if, if you had to actually send each spam email individually, it wouldn't be such a challenge for us to combat. So that's a bad side of automation, right? It's being used for a bad purpose. But on the same side, if you didn't have automation, there's no way Gmail could filter out all of our spam emails, right? That wouldn't even be a thing that you would need every human on earth to sit through and read emails and find those and get rid of them, right? And so to a certain degree, I tend to believe that there will always be more jobs. There will always be things where, you know, people need to do more stuff. Automation's not going to come and take away everyone's jobs entirely. It's going to take away some part of your job and you're going to have some time to focus on what's the core aspect of your work. So for instance, um, in our work at Zapier, 
obviously we're building an automation tool and we tend to use it a lot ourselves. And yet our team is still growing. Um, we're still, there's every Friday you still get to the end of the day and you're like, oh man, there's more things I could do. Um, and I think that's a great thing, right? Is that it lets you, you're able to think outside the box um, instead of sitting there and feeling like you have to copy and paste data between stuff, Zapier can do that for you. Um, instead of you needing to filter your spam or whatever, there's all these jobs that we can let automation do. And it basically gives humans more place to specialize. Um, with self-driving cars even, you can look for it and imagine a future where people are needed in some part of the aspect, right? Maybe they actually still take the packages to the customer. Maybe they're sorting things in the back of the truck while the uh, truck is driving. It's really hard to say, but I tend to believe that people will find there will always be extra things that we can do. And in your own personal career and for today, right? That's not here. And so how do people prepare for that, prepare for automation? Is Part of it is just thinking about what in your job is repetitive and tedious those things are often things you can automate and you can go ahead and do that, make yourself more efficient at your job. And that gives you a chance to grow your skills and basically future proof yourself. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's a really, really good answer. Um, uh, and, a, and a hopeful one, which is, which is great. And I think it's in alignment with what a lot of, a lot of people are saying. Um, uh, one interesting thing about that technology has enabled in addition to all kinds of automation is um, remote work. Um, and I was uh, interested to learn that Zapier is not just a hundred percent distributed team, but has been since its founding in 2011. And um, you guys sort of literally wrote a book about it. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that for those who maybe haven't had the pleasure of working on a distributed team um, what are what are some of the benefits you most enjoy, and what are some of the challenges that you you know find most difficult about that style of work? Yeah, so Zapier started out as a remote team. Um, if I've got the details correct, um, when Zapier first was founded um, and got accepted into Y Combinator, um, the founders were going to move to Silicon Valley. Um, for the connections to be close to investors, etc. And one of the co-founders um, did not feel he could move right then. And so it was basically that started the idea of that we needed to work remotely, um, that he could work remotely from where he was and um, then later joined them. And basically, since he started out that way, Zachary just grew remote and our entire team is still remote. Um, there are people who live nearby who get together um, for monthly or weekly co-work sessions. Um, but for the most part, we're all working in our own offices or local coffee shops or co-working spots and um, building the product together. Um, the thing that you really need to make that work is communication. Um, obviously, communication is important for any job, anything you're doing together with other people. You need to talk about it. But in a remote team, the person you need to talk about that with may be 12 time zones away. Um, or they may be in your time zone, but their dad's sick today and they can't be in the office. That's why written communication is really important. And I think one thing that's probably helped inform the way we write in public is the way Zapier writes in private. So everything we do is discussed in text. Um, we write internal documentation about just off, often just our thought process about why we're doing a certain thing, what we're trying, 
oh, this experiment worked or it didn't work. And now future employees can go through and read that. And instead of making the same mistake again, they can improve on what we did in the past. And so obviously all day we're in a team chat app. Um, we use Slack. We rarely use email. Email is more for um, third-party interactions, for talking to partners and people who aren't in our company team chat. Then we have an internal, eh, used to you'd call it an intranet basically. Um, nowadays we use Quip and uh, we have an internal blog where we post more or less longer form announcements. And all those things basically help us work together remote. So even when we are together, so two to three times a year, the Zapier team gets together for all company retreats or full team retreats. Um, even when we're all in the same room, we're mostly sitting at our computers saying the very same stuff on Slack that we would otherwise. And often, even if we get together and we're talking about what we're going to do, once we're done with that talk, we're going to sit down and write it up just so it doesn't get lost. And that's just a, a core value we have, and it's made remote work for us, right? And then sometimes you can find trade-offs that make it better. So I'm in Thailand. The rest of the editorial team um, is in the States. Um, actually, right now is in East Coast, uh, Eastern Standard Time. And so we're basically 13 hours off. And they can be working on a piece of content during the day. And then they message me at 6 p.m. their time, 7 a.m. my time. And they're like, hey, can you edit this today? When they wake up, I've got it edited in their inbox ready to go, uh, or vice versa, right? I can write something they can edit it during the day. So to a certain degree, being remote lets you do these crazy handoff things where you can keep the company running 24-7. There's always someone in the office, even though we can easily let people go do what they need. If being remote, if you need to take time off, you need to go check on something, you need to, hey, be home for the UPS guy to bring a package, you're good, right? So... It's, it, that works well. Of course, the downside is exactly that, too. One, you're at your own house, so it can get lonely. And uh, two, obviously, communication can be a challenge still. If you need something from someone in a different time zone, you really may have to wait till tomorrow. But I think that helps us focus also, right? Because you have to plan ahead and you have to realize that sometimes you need to just fix your own problem and not wait for whoever to come fix it for you. So it's definitely got its pros and cons, but I think the pros vastly outweigh the cons. Yeah, it's really interesting um, I'm, yeah, uh, that, to hear that um, you do, did you say two or three um, uh, get-togethers a year? Yep. Yeah, that, that seems to be um, one of the, you know, big challenges that people have is sort of keeping cohesiveness over time um, and regular whole company get-togethers, you know, if you can afford them, um, sounds like a really good a really good solution to that. But it's interesting you talk about how even when you're together, you kind of end up working the same way. Um, yep. Uh, we have one other thing that I think helps with that is every week we have a random pair partner. So uh, have a script that basically randomly assigns two people on the team to have a chat. And we'll just jump on the phone and literally chat about anything. And it may seem silly, but the good thing is it helps us meet new team members. And it you know, gives you that little watercolor banter where we can't exactly go out to lunch with a coworker so easy, but we've got that, right? And it gives you a bit of a personal connection. And then different teams will do similar kind of things. Um, the group of employees that are in the Asia Pacific in general will have a once a month meetup. 
And at first we're like, oh, we need to do business related stuff. And it's really devolved into just discussing life, just having a hangout. And it's a great time. Sometimes we'll discuss work stuff and sometimes we're discussing literally the weather. And I think it's a great way to make us still feel like we've got that personal connection, even though we're all remote. Uh, those sound like two great ideas, um, the, uh, the meetup, but, but also that random assignment of, of uh, you to someone else. Um, to have a chat. That sounds like I've never heard that before, but that sounds like a really great innovation um, for keeping a remote team cohesive. I mean, and as you say, you know, you know, with, with, with um, sort of less regimented styles of work, knowing more about your colleagues needs and interests, you know, sick dad, things like that um, can really help you, you manage things better. Yeah. Um, one of the, things that people talk about being an issue. I mean, this is true for office work as well, but in particular, when you work from home, you know, you're entirely in control of your own environment and you're often, you know, very much in control of your time and it can be difficult for people to focus. And so one thing that people who work remotely do is they have discussions around their setup and around their practices. Um, and I just bring this up to build up some context for a really good blog post that you wrote recently about two books, uh, one called Deep Work and one called Messy. And I was wondering if you could share your thoughts about um, those books, about, you know, deep work uh, and, and about, um, and, you know, the positive things that can come from that, but also kind of the positive things that can come from something which is opposite or like it's opposite as is described in the book, Messy. Yeah, so I had read the Deep Work book and found it really fascinating. And uh, our marketing manager, Danny Schreiber, had mentioned that he had been reading a book called Messy um, and found it equally interesting. And in comparing notes, it seemed like these books were sort of opposites. And Deep Work had been at the basically the top charts of business books for 2016 for a while. Uh, Messy was similar, but not quite as high up. And so I thought that was a great chance to basically read and contrast them. And when I read it, the funny thing is I found so many similarities because the basic thing is still the same thing. We need to do creative work nowadays. Maybe 100 years ago, it would have been fine to chop wood the very same way forever. And today, most people are not going to think that's fine. Even if you're chopping wood, you need to find better ways of doing it, right? And that takes two things. It takes focus and it takes creativity. And essentially, that's the message of these two books. The first is Focus, um, which is the Deep Work book. And it's probably especially important for remote workers. Um, he mentions how, how noisy a normal office can be, how as a professor, he always has people asking questions, stomping in his office, and that keeps him from getting things done. But whether you have that or it's just your email inbox, we've always got people making demands on their time. And Deep Work essentially says, you need um, your high quality work that you're going to produce is the time spent times the intensity of focus. And it's so easy nowadays to be distracted. Um, computers, which are the tool we use for work, are also the same tool we use for entertainment. We've got social media, you have Netflix. Everything's right there to distract you and everything's there to keep you productive. You can do research about some topic and it can be very productive. But sometimes you've got to know when enough's enough and say, hey, I've got to actually do the work, right? And 
So he gives four steps for that, more or less, is to work deeply, which by that he means to set aside time where you say, look, this I am only doing this project. Everything else is off, maybe even go offline. Uh, maybe even as a remote team member um, in Slack, post your statuses that you're busy on this project. Uh, maybe if you're in an office, literally put a flag on your desk or something to say, hey, please don't disturb me. Um, and then he says to embrace boredom. Um, and quit social media, both of those sort of go together. Instead of checking your phone or opening the Twitter app all the time, be bored sometimes, that's a great thing. And then drain the shallows, which is get rid of the least important work. Um, and that's probably where automation can come in, right? If you're copying and pasting data, there's probably a better way to do that. So that's deep work. Messy wants the same goals, right? Uh, wants the same results. But it says that basically sometimes if you regiment your life too much, Everything's in the same order. Nothing will ever spark your creativity. He mentions, um, the author mentions that uh, uh, commuters in London, um, the tube train system was down for a day. And so the commuters had to find a new route to go to work. And by tracking the data on the Oyster cards, which in London you used to pay for buses and the train, they found that a lot of people found a more optimal route to get to work every day just because the train was shut down. So if the train hadn't shut down, you would have kept doing the same thing forever, wasting 15 minutes a day. But since the train was shut down one day, that messiness forced you to find a better solution and you had to essentially try the bus and you realized, oh wow, this is better and you switched your normal commute. And things like that actually happen. That's why jazz is a thing, improv. Um, and so basically he's saying, maybe you need distraction. You need a bit of a mess. And that distraction is probably, once again, not gonna be Twitter and social media. But you need, maybe, if you're working remotely, you need to get out of your home office. That might be too much after a while. Maybe you need to just work at a co-working spot or get some outside feedback. Maybe you need to talk to other people. And so I think it's a good reminder that basically, deep work can make you feel like you need a laboratory, you need to be sterile, um, you need to focus. And that's great. Um, but Messi says, hey, if your desk is a mess, that's probably not the worst thing in the world. If some problem comes up, some emergency, and you have to throw your whole workday out of whack, that may actually now give you a deadline where you have to work harder and you're going to be more creative to hit that deadline. And I think it's a good thing to say don't stress so much, right, is that, you know, life's messy. Deal with it. It's, it's a good thing. And it can maybe help you do better, more creative work. So... I, I found them both fun. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, it's just a very clever um, way of uh, uh, putting together the ideas of focus and creativity and how, you know, they can they can play off each other. Um, uh, I really like that bus example or the London Metro or Tube example as well. Um, it reminded me of when I was an undergraduate. For my first year, I took the bus um, to university uh, like a chump. And then in my second year, um, uh, there was a bus strike. And uh, so I had to walk. Um, and while all sorts of interesting things started happening, like people would see students walking and just pick them up and give them rides, um, I realized that it would take me about 40 minutes to walk to school. But the combined time of waiting for a bus maybe catching one or maybe not catching one because it might be full, and then all the stops along the way was about 30, 35 minutes in general. Yep. So I could actually not pay money, not be annoyed waiting, and get a good walk-in. 
um, yeah. uh, rather than the sort of frustrating sardine can of a, you know, university bus kind of thing. Um, and it was a big improvement in my life. And I, from then on, unless it was, you know, minus 30, uh, I walked. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. I had something similar this past week. My father-in-law was in the hospital and, uh, the elevator at the hospital was just ridiculously slow. And of course tended to stop at every level all the way up. Right. Um, now he was on the ninth floor. So you're walking nine floors. That seems a bit crazy, but I wasn't getting much exercise in because of going back and forth to the hospital. So I started taking the stairs. And the crazy thing is I would notice people getting on at the first floor and getting off at the ninth floor. And we were about the same amount of time. So in the same amount of time, I was less frustrated because I didn't feel like, you know, this annoyance of the door opening and closing and I got exercise in. So, yeah, sometimes just try something random. It can really improve your life. Yeah. And, um, you know, questioning the things you do just because everybody else does it that way. Um, you know, that was, yep. my, that was my trap with the bus. You know, everybody took the bus. Um, and, uh, you know, I hadn't examined the assumptions behind that decision or even its effectiveness. Um, one uh, interesting example um, that you bring up from the book, Bessie, um, you know, there's, we've been talking about automation, but there's also um, autonomy, which can be really important in, in, in how people are, how productive and how creative people are. Um, and there's really an interesting example of office design and kind of business cultural decisions like the one, like those made by Steve Jobs initially at Pixar that can actually make people less productive by taking over their control. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts about that. Yeah, it's, we all know the problem, right? When you open a piece of software or you get a new computer, you have a new desk, etc. cetera. Uh, there's this deep, uh, deep temptation to want to tweak everything. Right. And, um, if, if you sit down and you just basically play with the settings all day, you're never going to get anything done, right? Um, and then on the flip side, if you make an environment where it's so unflexible, where no one can get anything done, that's bad too, right? And so sometimes you need, you need that control, right? You need a, a mid-level and you need a level of self-control where you say, okay, I'm done tweaking. This is good. Right. And so in that example, um, about Steve jobs, um, he wanted, basically he was trying to find a way to do what Zapier is doing with our random meetups where he wanted a way to make the office floor plan, force people to bump into each other and chat about random stuff while they were going to the restroom. And it was wasting time. It was making life more difficult for employees. And that pushed employees to stand up to even someone like Steve Jobs. And he finally backed down. And so that amount of self-control or uh, autonomy where people can influence their own workplace gave them a happier workplace. Remote is a great thing for that because everyone can set how they want to work. If you want to sit on your couch, if that's good for you, go for it, right? Um, but then at the same time, that comes with responsibility, right? That you need to be able to focus. You need to be able to, you know, not not tweak everything all day long, not tell Steve Jobs the entire design is bad and start over. You need to know where's a good limit and then get your stuff done. So I think it's got its trade-offs, but um, it's something basically, it's it's a good thing to learn how to do, handle right. Yeah, one of the examples, I believe, from that post that I found quite striking was um, there's a, there's, you know, talk in the last few years about creating office environments where people don't have their own desk. 
yeah. um, where people don't, I mean, you know, the, you know, and even prior to that don't have their own office, but you know, the more radical version is you just, you know, you have your, your laptop or whatever tools you use and you just carry those around with you. And one thing that can result from that is that people actually feel alienated by the space because Absolutely. they can't put something down and have it be there the next day. Because, you know, if you leave it, it's then in someone else's way if they want to use that same spot. And so you don't really feel a connection to anything. You can't keep, keep stuff. And you might have a locker, but I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that's not a very nice way to go to work. Yeah. And for some people, you're, some people are very social and they can sit down beside someone else at a table, strike up a conversation, make it productive and then get back to work. Other people, that's intimidating and having to go up and start that is a little bit of dread to add to every interaction in the day. And I maybe as, I don't know, as a good solution, I honestly don't know for an office environment. I do know one thing that works for me is that I have my home office. It can be however I want it to be. But then some days I need the spontaneousness of a coffee shop or a co-working spot. And there I'm grabbing a random seat next to a random person. Maybe I'll chat with them. Maybe we won't. But at any rate, it's that messy environment, right? Maybe companies need a desk for each person and a random workspace to combine the both of those. Um, I don't know, but I do know that you do need at least, you definitely need somewhere that feels like your own, that feels like you can sit down and just do work without having to think about extra stuff. Uh, moving on to your um, the, the Zapier books that have been uh, created using LeanPub and have been published on LeanPub, I was wanted to ask you a little bit. I mean, you know, um, producing content is, you know, a big part of your job um, and a big part of, of bringing attention to Zapier, as I gather. And I was wondering um, why you chose books uh, as a as a product to to create. So first, it was two things. Um, one is content strategy. Um, writing a book gives you a focus. Um, if we're going to write a book about G Suite, we need to have that set of content about G Suite. We need to walk people through it. We need to think through what we're going to talk about over the next few months. And often with a blog, it's easy to just write your next idea. And that can work great for a while, but eventually you're going to need something that sort of ties things together. And maybe it's not going to tie every single piece of content you write together, but having that strategy for, let's say, seven to ten blog posts can be a great thing. Um, so for Zapier, we publish the content on our blog first as blog post, and we've got this overarching strategy that, okay, in three months, this content's going to go together and be released as a book. And then that gives you a chance to re-promote that content again, and people see it with fresh eyes that, oh, now it's an actual book. And when you read through it together, hopefully you're going to learn more than you would from each post on its own. Um, and it gives us a great way to get in new markets. So your blog is on your own site. A book you can put on the Kindle store, on the iBook store. You can literally email it to people. Um, you can use those pieces of content as individual articles, or you can send the whole book when someone has a problem. Um, and if you want, you could print it um, if you actually want a physical item. Um, and that's I've heard from many people a great way to give away stuff at conferences and, you know, as another way to share your brand. So our books maybe aren't the exact same as a full publisher's polished book, but they do both give us a content strategy, help us share content, and 
I believe provide value for our readers. We've had people write in and say that they learned a lot from them. And so hopefully it's something that we're able to give the community. Yeah. The, um, the, uh, I noticed for the remote workbook, it's really interesting. Um, it's explicitly set up as something that's going to be updated, um, as, uh, as you know, Zapier's ongoing journey with, you know, being a hundred percent distributed team continues. And I yep. was wondering, um, I'm just curious as a sort of, you know, in the weeds kind of question, but how often do, does your team update that book? Yeah, so for that book, we've done two editions so far. Um, we're planning the third right now. Um, and the remote stuff is interesting because um, companies feel a lot different at different team sizes, right? So when you've got, when it's you and your co-founder, it's one thing, right? When you've got a dozen people, it's another thing. When it's maybe three, four dozen, and then you hit past the hundred and it starts, the dynamics change, right? That's true for any team. Um, and so for Zapier, we're trying to sort of focus the remote book in that perspective of here was sort of kind of phase one. Things that worked at that size may not work at phase two. So now we write about that. And then now as we've grown again, it's time to do that again. Um, we've For this book, we've kept the content online. So you can still read the original version. You can read the second one. And once we release the third one, we'll keep the old one around as well um, as a way to sort of go back and see, oh, okay, that's interesting. So they wrote about communication in this chapter, communication for a small startup that's remote works this way for a slightly larger team might work this way. And hopefully that's a good way for people to compare. Now the way books are written and the way even most CMS systems are designed, that comparison is difficult. You have to click back and whatever. Um, one day I hope that there would be a better way, right? Where you can have more loving content, sort of like a wiki, but in a less technical manner um, where people can look through those changes because I think that's a fascinating thing to be able to see how content needs to grow over time. And um, that, that answer may have already answered my next question, but um, can I ask why you chose to use LeanPub to create your books? Yeah, well, this is probably not the greatest answer, but frankly, it was the most logical decision we could have made is I was testing software, trying to find what would be the best way to make a book. Um, I tried using Pages, used Ulysses. Um, I tried Scrivener. Um, I had used um, just export tools that would turn your plain text into EPUB files. And frankly, everything works, right? Everything will let you make an EPUB file. What you often still end up with, though, is problems with just slight little compatibility issues between that export and the ebook stores. And so I would make these EPUB files, try to upload them to the iBook store, and it would inevitably have errors. And honestly, even when you were exporting from Pages, which is made by Apple as well, you would get some weird cryptic error. You would have to literally open the EPUB file, which is a zip. You can go in there and it's all XML files, right? You can edit the actual code in those XML files, zip it back up, change the extension to EPUB again, re-upload it to the iBook store. And it's like, oh, now you've got these five other errors. So you repeat the process, which was mind-numbingly crazy. So I tried more stuff, came across LeanPub. And honestly, the biggest reason we used it for that first book was it made EPUBs that actually worked the first time with iBooks. We had no errors. We just uploaded it. Boom, it was done. 
It was like, oh, okay, this is a revelation. We were totally going to use this going forward. And the other things that made it a great platform for us were it uses Markdown. And that's how we write already. So we take our blog posts, we edit them to remove, obviously there's stuff you're gonna have in your blog post that you don't want in the book. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe even code blocks or embedded videos, etc. So you have to think those through. Download that content. Basically the formatting's already done. You save that to Dropbox and you add it to LeanPub. And then updates is I can just edit that text file, add the five words we changed or whatever, and hit republish on LeanPub and boom, you've got your EPUB PDF files again. So it's worked really well for us. And um, yeah, that's really, I just wanted to mention that's, that's really good to hear. Um, you know, when you, when you work on something all the time, you're off, you can often have, you know, as we do on LeanPub, you can often have an exaggerated um, uh, relationship to its flaws um, and sometimes um, lose sight of the fact that uh, there may, you know, it may actually be working really well for people. <laughs> I say that not because I don't have confidence in LeanPub, but just because, like I said, when you're when you're that close to a product, um, it's it's anyway. It's very nice to hear stories like that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, my last question is: if there were a single feature we could build for you that would improve LeanPub or perhaps add to its usefulness for your purposes of marketing, um, what would that be? So with the caveat that this would be the, uh, the kind of thing that would make you want to sit and tweak it forever, it would be great to have more design options, um, to be able to tweak the layout, um, tweak the uh, typography you're using, um, your page sizes, et cetera. Um, as uh, for us when we're starting out, right, as just plain textbooks, it's easy to just use the plain text options. And obviously with EPUB, that's all that's going to be used anyhow. You really, frankly, can't make a Kindle book look much nicer than it's going to look. It's just text, right? Um, and you're gonna, your reader is going to tweak the fonts on their own device. Um, but with PDFs, it would be really cool to have not all the features of InDesign or something like that, but just where there was a bit more control over the design. Um, and I, I know some things have already been added in that respect. So it'll be cool seeing how it continues improving. Yeah. As you, um, invoke there, it is this delicate dance. Um, because, uh, well, one of the reasons that, um, you know, not necessarily in, in your case, but one of the reasons that people often do have trouble, um, creating their own book files and then getting them onto online services is that they're doing all kinds of bespoke, you know, very detailed formatting type things. Um, and, uh, you know, that can confuse the software that generates the book files. Yep. Um, and also as, and also as you invoked, um, uh, you know, if you, we at LeanPub, we have this sort of tongue in cheek saying that formatting it while you're writing your book, formatting is procrastination. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, we've all, all, all creative types know the, uh, the temptation to start tweaking things and then you end up, you know, enjoying yourself doing that, but not really getting the core <laughs> kind of deep work done. Um, and, uh, it's so deceptive, right? It feels like you're getting stuff done and all you're doing is changing your file, uh, name or you're tweaking your typeface or whatever. Um, that's why Markdown is a great thing, right? Because I use IA writer, which has 
almost zero features. You almost can't change anything, including the font. You can't change the font. You can't change the color. Um, you can change the size a little bit. But for the most part, you literally have to write. You just sit down and write. And that's the great thing about it. You, there's nothing to tweak. And it forces you to focus. Yeah, and it, um, it, it sort of, by offering fewer options, it's easier to standardize output. Mm, yep. I had a recent example where um, people people can upload Word documents or to to LeanPub, or they can actually you know write in a Word document in a Dropbox folder or in GitHub. Um, but we have we have sort of deliberately very limited support for the features in Word. And one thing that was happening when people were generating when a couple of people were trying to generate books from their Word um, documents, they would get these weird kind of span elements showing up oh, in man. the text. And yep. it took me, it had been bugging me for quite some time. And finally it kind of surfaced to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm going to solve this fucking problem. Um, and um, what had happened was when you create a table of contents in a word document, it creates hidden bookmarks for each item that will appear in the clickable item that will appear in the table of contents. And so if you delete, even if you delete the table of contents, those hidden bookmarks stay like in, oh, the, in the document. And then, so I discovered this after poking around. And so you have to go to bookmarks, you have to click hidden bookmarks. And then, and you can have, you know, in a big book, you can have hundreds of these. There was only, you could only delete them one at a time. Oh, um, and, and, uh, you know, finally I found some VBA code online where you can, you know, do that and sort of get rid of them all at once. And it worked like a charm, but and I'm just bringing this up to say, you know, people might be surprised to hear why can it be difficult in 2017 to like put a bunch of words together and put them in an EPUB, um, uh, create an EPUB file that just works in iBooks. And it's because of issues like that. And that's a sort of, you know, sort of deep reason for standardizing and simplifying, the way books are written um, because, you know, when, when, you know, for example, you know, with word, I still, if I open up a 20 page document, I'll get the beach ball and, you know, <laughs> slow scrolling. Yeah. Um, and it's because, you know, it's loading up mail merge options, which, you know, you can use to create letters, uh, you know, and, and, you know, like at, at, supply a list of addresses and names but you know, I'm to say I'm writing a novel. You know, what, <laughs> why, why am I using this like uh, Rube Goldberg machine to do something very simple? So, anyway, for yeah. anyone listening, you know, that's that sort of a sort of broad technical explanation for um, why adding new formatting options can actually be something that is something that one actually needs to take quite seriously. Um, this loops back around, I think, to our discussion before. This is why automation hasn't won yet and probably is never going to win 100% is that there's always crazy things like this, right? Like if we can't even get these kind of things to work, there's there's always things that you can automate that are going to help your life and that are absolutely not going to take away your job to just take the pain out of it. And it's another thing. Seriously, people, use Markdown, use plain text. It's so much better. You will really be grateful once you switch. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, it's, it's one thing that is interesting is how um, difficult it is sometimes to convince people to switch away from writing in Word. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talk about people internalizing their 
oppression. Um, <laughs> you know, using word is just w way more complicated than using plain text. Yeah. Um, and uh, people often don't, you know, like with the hidden bookmarks, you know, people often how, and this is not like a blaming thing or, or any accusation, like how could you possibly know that word is doing all this crazy stuff in the background yep. of your document? Uh, and, um, so you don't, you don't even sometimes know the problems that you're creating for yourself, uh, by using something, if it's, you know, the only thing you've ever used. Well, see, words designed for paper, right? And so the, the tools that are there are designed to make something look nice on a printed sheet of paper. And if you've written your copy and you want to use word to format it and print it right there, it's great for that. Actually, it's good at that intended purpose. It isn't great for writing every single random thing that humans need to write. And unfortunately, that's the job that's been given, right, is that people use it for every single thing. And really, just uh, all you need is really notepad or text edit. Maybe a slightly shinier app if you want to spend money, but all you need is somewhere to type. You could literally write your next novel in iMessage. It would work because all you need to do is type. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, we recently released a new product we call our visual editor, which was designed specifically for people writing novels. Um, and, you know, what we did was we, um, we realized the solution uh, was to just radically simplify the options that we offer people. Um, and so in our editor, you know, where you don't, you don't need to, um, you don't need to learn the part of the purpose of it was so that people wouldn't have to learn Markdown, um, which, you know, some people, you know, I, I think that in the future, like in 20 years, writing like that will become much more familiar to people as they do, you know, everybody takes, you know, programming in school and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But for now, for a lot of people, they hear the word Markdown and they're like, what, I, you know, that just sounds like something I don't <laughs> want to even go near. Um, so we, we made this visual editor for people like that. And it's a totally fair and legitimate and understandable thing. Um, and the only options that you have are, um, italic section, um, and subsection. Uh, and, um, I believe that's it. Wow. No bold, no bold. Not right now. We've, we've already had a request for it. Um, uh, that was a bold decision. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you know, one of the, one of the reasons is, you know, when you think about it, when was the last time you saw bold words in a novel? That is true. Um, you know, italics are there. Uh, but other than that, it's just sort of, you know, it's, as it were, normal text and italics and then, you know, chapter headings. Oh, and we also, sorry, I missed, I knew I would miss one. We also have scene breaks which is a little line that sort of divides one part of the text from another. Um, and that is something that's, you know, pretty common in, in uh, certain genres of fiction. Um, but yeah, uh, the answer we thought, I mean, we'll iterate over time and respond to people as they get in touch, but you know, that was partly there to address, you know, the, the same kind of issue that you were in, um, bringing up by saying that, you know, people evolved to use word for everything. Um, if you had a dedicated novel writing, um, uh, tool, you know, it probably wouldn't even like ours, it, it wouldn't even offer the opportunity to make a link. Yeah. When was the last time you, you bought a book at the, at the bookstore and brought it home and had a link in it? Um, uh, and you know, um, for, for nonfiction, obviously links, you know, in eBooks will obviously be very important, but, um, for fiction, you know, not necessarily at all. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to use all these powerful and other types of features, then LeanPub offers you them in other modes. But we've just got this one really focused 
mode that doesn't let you do any of that. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much uh, for doing this interview. Um, I really enjoyed it. We covered a lot of ground, and it's always nice to circle back at the end as well to sort of have a consistent theme. So um, thanks, very yeah. much. thanks very much for doing the interview. Um, and unless there's anything you have, any questions you'd like me to ask you that I've sort of not addressed? Yeah, I think we're good. It was really fun. Thanks for having me on today. Okay, thank you very much.